Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blastingame, and I have three names, and I'm also your host. Wow. <laughs> Today, we have my friend, actual friend, IRL in real life. Christopher Paulson. Chris Paulson is a licensed marriage and family therapist with over 15 years of experience working within the field of behavioral health. He holds a master's degree in clinical psychology and has a wealth of clinical experience and expertise. Having previously served as the clinical director, clinical supervisor, and director of admissions at a number of behavioral health organizations ranging from nonprofit to private sector. Chris has been sober for over 16 years, and much of his personal experience has helped shape his belief systems surrounding the effective treatment of substance use disorders. In 2018, Chris helped start and co-found a detox and residential treatment program in Washington State called Discover Recovery. To a large extent, this recent endeavor has been the culmination of collective experience borrowed from his previous work experience. His life has not been idyllic as he has had to overcome a significant amount of personal adversity. However, his ability to weather these proverbial storms has reinforced his belief in the process of healing and the ability to persevere. Chris has appeared on national television as an expert on addictive disorders, was previously a keynote speaker for University of California's Collegiate Recovery Conference, and continues to strive to be a voice of compassion and humanism within the world of addiction. That is my friend Chris. He is rad, and he has an incredible amount of knowledge on this topic, both personal and professional, and I am so excited that he had the time to come and talk to us. I think he did a really great job of balancing, telling us about what it was like, and also sharing with us solution and what it means to be a person in long-term recovery. I know you guys are going to love this episode with my friend IRL in real life, Christopher Paulson. Let's do this episode 77. I was commenting on the fact that as far as I know, Lion Rock was the first company to ever use the telehealth platform and it's been going on for, by my estimation, eight or nine years. Ten. Okay. Well, I was close. You were real close. But those two extra years, we, you know, as 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 someone who's been doing it, you feel two years. But yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been crazy. You know, we we started like long time in 2010 and we were talking to people about it trying to convince people how great it was how all I this... remember that people were skeptical oh people were skeptical is the nice word yeah <laughs> people were people were like totally that's ridiculous whatever and now every you know everybody and their mother wants to get in and uh you know it's it's an interest it's a really you know we have i, I think something that's interesting is a lot of people are like, well, how do you feel now that people are out doing outpatient online and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, listen, we have 500 clients at a time. Like right now, we have 500 patients that we are treating right now. We have 48 different groups and we have therapists all over the world. So, you know, I mean, that's, 
while people can certainly get on Zoom and conduct a session, you know, it's not exact. It's, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of, uh, Advantage. Head, advantage and, and head time. But we worked really hard for that head time. No, I remember uh, it probably was nine years ago and you guys were explaining the process of testing and they used mm-hmm. the, the swab in front of the camera and then they lock it and they can't tamper with it. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's been, uh, I don't think fascinating is the word, but watching a lot of the outpatient treatment providers sort of scramble in the midst of this chaos and navigate mm-hmm. global pandemic. It's been messy. Oh, I've seen it like I've seen it firsthand, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I I work in treatment and it's all I've ever done. (laughs) Fortunately or unfortunately. So how long have you worked in treatment? My first job in treatment was in 2005 with the Karen Foundation in South Florida. I always tell people, it's funny, anytime I tell somebody I got sober in Mm -hmm. Florida... Mm -hmm. I saw that. they, They immediately are like, oh my God, and I have to kind of give them some context and psychoeducation like well you know in 2004 the affordable care act hadn't been passed and insurance couldn't be utilized to cover treatment (laughs) you know treatment back then it was like the wild west oh yeah it was crazy and nobody covered it i mean so or nobody wanted it covered because you'd have this blemish on your medical record right well right that's also true you know it's 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 so funny because i was working in treatment since 2005. And I remember 2008, 2009, I was at a facility and it was cash only. And this guy shows up one day and it's like, Hey, you want to know how to bill insurance for treatment? And it was like, I hate to say it, but it was like the gold rush. It was really crazy to witness. And since then, you know, things have really (laughs) gone in some bad, yeah, gotten ugly. Gotten ugly. Yeah. It's, uh, so wait, so you started working in treatment in 2005. So when did you get sober? Uh, July 25th, 2004. 2004. Okay. And how old are you? Uh, 20. 20. 20, oh, 20 years young. You are in the Never Had a, a Legal Drink Club with me. Yeah, I don't. I mean, yes, I am. Yes, you are. Just, just own it. I, I do, but I didn't stop me from drinking a lot. Oh, no. No, no, no. I'm just saying. We, I, did, I wouldn't have stopped if that hadn't been the case. But, you know, never had a legal drink. I, I always thought that was interesting. Was it a point of pride for you? No, I just thought it was so bizarre that I had maxed out my ability to, like, I had to get sober before I was even allowed to drink. I was 19. And so there was this whole, like, life, this legal drinking life that I had very, like, I went to a lot of bars, but not quite the way that they, you know, so it was really different. So it was always just like a, it was always just a weird thing that like, I got sober before I was even allowed to. So my drinking looked very different. Yeah, I don't, the the whole appeal of bar drinking and clubs and stuff like that, I never got it. Like, I remember I went to a bar when I was maybe 19 or 20. And, and I asked the bartender, I said, can you take a water glass and just fill it up with vodka mm-hmm, with like mm-hmm. maybe some lemon? And they're like, no way. Yeah. You can't serve it that way. It's like you can get like four ounces. I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, that's a waste. Yeah. The best they can do is like a Long Island. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I drink for effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I found it to be incredibly expensive. And and so I would spend time drinking beforehand. But it was just was not my not my scene. So wait, where did you tell me about a little bit about growing up, which what's your. Where'd you grow up and what was that like? 
I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm a rare native Angelino. My family moved here from New York and we lived in Venice or I guess Marina del Rey. And then when I was two and a half, we moved to, uh, you know, it's funny. I used to say we moved to Hollywood, but if we really want to be honest, it was Hancock Park. Which is this really rough area. Yeah. (laughs) But it's funny because I'd be so defensive about that, you know, because in in the midst of using and even getting sober, I I had, you know, a persona and I wanted to Mm -hmm. be some tough guy. And (laughs) so, okay. So you are you an only child? No, I'm the youngest. uh, Well, I have two older brothers. So so three, my parents had three kids. I'm the youngest. Okay. Three boys. Three boys. Three boys. Okay. And what were your parents, what was your home life like growing up? I would say not good. What I've come to realize is that everyone's experience growing up is subjective. Totally. But I'm relatively convinced that I was unplanned because my parents were living beyond their means. So there was this undercurrent of anxiety all the time about money. And, uh, you know, it's funny, as I've gotten older, I I remember I asked my dad, I said, just tell me, like, was I an accident? And he wouldn't say, he wouldn't just lie and say, no, you weren't. He said, well, why does that matter? You know, like, I'm like, all right, come on. So I say all that to mean I, uh, if you ever read like family systems theory, there's this phenomenon called the lost child. Mm -hmm. That was kind of me. Like I slipped through the cracks in a lot of ways. And um, I'll tell you, it's kind of a... It's funny, but not like really funny. I uh, Both my parents worked full time. My dad was a traveling salesman. So he was gone pretty much five days a week, maybe four days a week on the road. And my mom was a writer and she wrote soap operas. And the thing about, the thing about soap operas is they're hour long and the completion rate of a screenplay is, I think it's, you have to have one done every two days. So... She was putting in like these brutal. No wonder they're bad. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So she was putting in these crazy hours. So you know, my parent, you know, my brothers were old enough to be in school, but they, uh, they just left me with this woman who raised me, and you know, God bless her. Like I'm, I'm grateful because I had a secure attachment. But she wasn't from the U.S. And uh, if you want an indication of where I spent my time growing up, I couldn't speak English until I was about four. Mm. So I'm a native mm. Spanish speaker, which is pretty bizarre because uh, I'm Irish and Norwegian. That's amazing. Well, it's yeah, it's like yeah. like like on like from good to bad. It's just ama- like well, it came in handy later on because I never lost yeah. the Spanish, and I have a I have a good accent, but it, it translated into some weird stuff. Like I I got I have a I don't know if you can pick up on it. I've done some work, but I had a pretty severe speech impediment. But it wasn't Definitely a real it, pick up on it. It wasn't a speech impediment. It's that I wasn't a native speaker. So I had like an accent, but then I get put in speech therapy. And, and it wasn't until oh, I was wow. like 30 that someone's like, oh, I thought that was just because you don't speak English or the English wasn't your first language. And I'm like, oh, my God, like that makes total sense. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say that I didn't um, I didn't get a lot of attention and um, I sort of just flew under the radar and then as my brothers got older, they both are... How much older are they? So my brother Jay is six years older and Robert is three years older. And Jay started getting into trouble young. 
I mean, like I remember like as a kid being like four years old and finding cigarettes in his room. And that's like a 10 year old smoking cigarettes. Like that's like, I don't know. That doesn't seem normal. And then my brother, Robert, I'm, he started, he started smoking weed really young, probably 11 or 12. And I'm not trying to play analyst or doctor, but I think it did something to his emotional development because he got very angry and after the weed smoking started well just when he hit puberty it was like yeah, it, okay, it was okay. unlike anything i've ever seen in in like clients i've worked with and unfortunately being his younger brother i received the brunt of it and um i didn't think much of it i thought that's what brothers do and then ironically when i went to treatment they had to like they were like oh my god like we need to test you for ptsd and all this stuff cuz it was like pretty horrific like you know getting tied up left in locked closets and trunks of cars and broken bones. And, you know, just, it was severe abuse physically and emotionally. And then, you know, my dad had a horrible temper and my mom, I don't know, she's very externally focused. So when asked, was there, you know, so there was a lot of violence. Yeah, for sure. Home. For sure. And not all from my father, my father, you know, they, when they talk about abuse, they were in, in intimate partner violence. They talk about pit bulls or pythons where the pit bull is the one that's always aggressive and abusive. And then the Python is like, you never know when it's going to come out. That was my father. Like he'd go from zero to rage in, you know, just a split second. So, you know, so there was this air of like anxiety. And then I can remember like asking for help, you know, and basically being told like, no, nah, sorry, like we can't do anything. So it was really about your, yeah. with your brother. Yeah. They couldn't control him. I mean, like, I remember my parents would try and discipline him and he would just say, you know, F you and leave. That's exactly how I was. That's exactly how I was. Yeah. Did you, were you afraid he was going to like kill you by accident or hurt you? Like, I I don't think I ever thought he was going to kill me, but I mean, he would, he would like humiliate me and uh, like the beatings were bad. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, none of this is said from a position of self-pity. It's, I mean, obviously he was troubled and. I, the truth is, I don't know what my parents could have done. I sympathize and empathize with them. And, you know, if I had a child that was just volatile, I, I don't know what else they could have done except maybe try and like they sent him to therapy, but that didn't do anything. But ironically, when I started getting high, that's how he and I bonded. Something translated and he saw that I was doing what he was doing. And he kind of was like, oh. wait, is this Jay? No, this is Robert. Robert. Jay Jay was six years older, so he left home at 18. Robert and I bonded through getting high. And um, what was difficult about that is the sort of enmeshment, approval seeking, all of that stuff was still there. Like it fit the, fit the criteria of an abusive relationship and, you know, wanting to be accepted. And I just followed suit and whatever he wanted to do, we did. So needless to say, growing up was uh, was not easy. When did you guys start getting high? Well, I got introduced to alcohol when I was probably 12. Ironically, Robert wasn't much of a drinker. He was more into drugs. So I drank for a few years, but I got really into weed probably 14 or 15. And he had left home for school. But when he came back and saw that I'd kind of followed in his footsteps, it was something we were able to share and bond over. It's funny, too, because I can remember making a decision when I was young because I saw the impact uh, drugs and alcohol had on them. And I can vividly remember, like, I don't want to be like them. I, I'm i going to be abstinent. And I thought it was like a point of pride. Like, I don't party. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, 
I think there's still debate about what causes addiction, whether it's biological, psychological, or social, probably all three. But, probably all three, yeah. yeah. But I, I can tell you that the, the first time I smoked weed, like a switch got flipped. There was no progression. I went from the first time I did it to I'm going to do this every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> Like, I'm not I'm not exaggerating. I, I know I, I laugh because I can't tell you how many people I've had on the podcast who literally are like, I tried it and I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my like as so many people I know. It's why like that that was the first thought they had. Well, and I don't know about you, but drugs were easier to get than alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'll be mm-hmm. I'll be honest, like I was a late bloomer. Like I looked young. So a fake ID was not really an option. <laughs> And if I asked somebody to buy something for me, I looked like I was 12. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I got introduced to substances and I don't want to say the rest is history because within the the years of compulsive drug use, there's a lot of heartbreak and really sad things that took place. But, you know, I can also tell you that, you know, pretty quickly it was apparent that I had a problem. What were your ultimate drugs of choice? I mean, do you have a, like a, a list I could give you? I mean, I, I can like wh- okay. Let's back up. What were th- what was the thing? If you could have two things and you had all the money and all the access, the two things you would get would be what? That's a tough one. I think I would need three things. Okay, three things. <laughs> it was heroin, crack, cocaine, and and benzodiazepines. Okay, yeah. So that's a that's a that's a party. Well, and that's the thing. Like I I never fully like I was strung out on heroin like bad. And um, when I went to detox, it was 2004. And I think I was, I I don't know the timeline of Suboxone, but I think I was one of the first people they used it on to detox because they did, there was no talk of maintenance therapies or MAT. It was just, you're going to start on 24 milligrams and over the next two weeks, we're going to get you off. But heroin was always a means to not turn into a weirdo when I smoked crack. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's just... No, no, I'm laughing because the first time I smoked crack, I was in this, I was in East Palo Alto and I went to go pick up my Coke dealer who was a crack dealer. And so I went to go pick up Coke before it went to crack, right? And so I I had already had heroin in the morning. And uh, and so I went to go pick up this Coke and they had already turned it to crack, which was like my worst nightmare. And uh, so I go into this, garage because that's where my crack dealer is living and I smoked crack and I was like I don't understand it like didn't have the effect because I had already done heroin in the morning and so I was laughing like it didn't that the make you not a weirdo thing because I was like I don't really get it like what what happened here well I'll tell you when you have uh, do, do you have you have siblings right I am the oldest of three Got girls it. well you know my brother's did their best to try and teach me about responsible mm-hmm. use. Mm-hmm. You know, and I always laugh because my brother Robert had told me, you know, if you're going to smoke crack, make sure it's after 2 a.m. Like you can't smoke crack before 2 a.m. And I'm like in my mind, like, OK, I guess like because if I don't. Right. Remind me of Cinderella. Like if I smoke crack at like midnight, <laughs> I'm going to turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> what was the reason for that? Well, the reason and this is what I used to say when I was uh, before I got sober is like you're only addicted to crack until you fall asleep. So the reason was if you start smoking at 2 a.m., by the time the sun comes up, you you are going to want to go to bed, potentially. Mm. But if you start smoking in the morning, you're going to chase that all day into the night, and it has great greater ah. likelihood of turning into a multiple-day run. 
Interesting. Was this theory accurate? I hate to say it, but it was. Interesting. Yeah, I remember there, the, the day came where it was like 10 in the morning and I, I took a hit and then my, my day was mapped out for me. It was I have to find I have to get money, get more and then get money and get more. And it kind of it, 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 it eclipsed every other goal I had. How funny. That's really, you know, and, really and, and my brother, Jay, he was uh, he was more of a drinker. Like he he partied and used substances, but alcohol was always his thing. And I remember we got into a lot of trouble at my grandmother's funeral. Um, I can. <laughs> well, yeah, if you, want, if you ask me what my strong suits were, it was like ruining family events, getting arrested, right. embarrassing myself. Yeah. But um, yeah. we had we had the, the funeral was a two day affair. It was okay. in Kansas City, Missouri, because that's where my grandmother was from. And she was like a principal at the school and an upstanding member of society. Oh, no. So Saturday was the burial at the cemetery. And then Sunday was a big memorial. And I, I knew I was going to be kicking because I wasn't going to try. I, I don't know. For whatever reason, I didn't take any heroin with me. I wasn't that strung out at, at that time. But I did take a lot of uh, clonazepam, brand, brand mm-hmm. name clonopin. Mm-hmm. And I can remember my mother asked me, you know, like, hey, like, please just keep it together. <laughs> um, I've had that conversation. Yeah. Like there's this important uh, family event. Uh-huh. Can you please yeah. just keep yeah. it together? That preemptive. Like, not, like the best part about that when I think back to it is like, they're not asking us to be well. They're not asking us to be like, to not be a shit show. They're asked, they're like this one time, just like you can do drugs every other time you can be a shit show every other time just this like there's an acceptance almost from them asking that yeah it was like a pleading yeah but i i remember i was i was taking these pills and my brother jay's there robert was in jail at the time and uh jay's like what are those and i'm like oh man like you want some so it's 9 a.m we're at a funeral and oh no you know we go to brunch afterwards at some kansas city barbecue place and I just remember my mom looking down the table at me and I'm I'm drinking a beer. Like, sorry. Like, I, I guess, you know, this is what we're doing. But the day just quickly decompensated. And, you know, we got we got liquor and went to a baseball game and took more pills and drank more beer and then went to a bar after that and got kicked out of the bar. But the night culminated with uh, my brother and I getting into a fist fight in the back of our cousin's car. And then we got dragged out and it, it was, um, it's not, I'm not proud of it at all. It, it's, you know, they talk about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I mean, we were in a gas station parking lot, just wailing on each other. And, you know, not that anyone cares, but I did win the fight. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> my brother, my brother's like six, three, I'm, I'm, I'm five ten, And I, you know, I weighed 130 pounds and, he was bloated right. from alcohol. So I was always very, for a long time, it was a point of pride. Like, yeah. I won. Yeah, right. But, you know, the cops came and my parents showed up while we're fighting. And they've never, oh, and, no. and and when I, 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 again, I'm not, I'm, I try not to be one to exaggerate or you employ hyperbole, but it was brutal, you know. Um, and they'd never seen that. They, you know. Right. They, they'd definitely right. never seen me. Like, well, and now, and it's a funeral and there's like so much going on. Yeah. So, you know, my mom begs the police not to arrest us because of the memorial the next day. And in hindsight, I'm like, man, going like getting arrested on a Saturday night would have been in there till Monday. 
But the next day we have to go to this memorial and like, you know, my brother's got a black eye and he's bleeding from one of them. And, you know, I got, he got a couple of licks in, you know, family, some cousins and an aunt and uncle tried to perform an intervention and that didn't <laughs> go well. It's funny because I've done these intervention trainings over the years. And, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. I'm like, Ugh, what an amateur mistake. You never do it on two people at once. You, you got to get someone by themselves. Oh, what am I love when I'm I'm a um, an intervention you know trained interventionist and my favorite is when people call me and they're like hey I need to talk to you I need you to help me I'm gonna do an intervention on my insert whatever like I need you to help me map that out I'm like are you involved in this like. No, you're not going to do an intervention on them. Like, that's the worst idea ever. If you are part of the family system and planning the intervention. You um, got no one to tap in professional help. (laughs) Seriously, like, yeah, there's not. I mean, I'll try to help you, but. Well, but, and I say all this to, so so the next day we're at this memorial and my, my brother catches me drinking behind a building. You know, he kind of stumbles around. And all I remember is he said to me, he said, damn it, Christopher, don't you know that if you get in trouble, you got to stop for a little while because otherwise they're going to think you have a problem. Or I think he said, they'll know you have a problem. And I'm like, oh, that's that's good feedback, Jay. Like, like <laughs> you save that one. What were the situation like at some point you became homeless? So like what were some of the instances where you're like, oh, this is you know, there's like, oh, I have a problem. And then there's like, oh, my God, like I am I might die. Well, I'll be honest. I had a lot of knowledge of addiction to a certain extent because my brother Robert started going to treatment when I was probably 17. So I had sat in on interventions and I had been to Mm -hmm. family group and I had Mm -hmm. a little bit of insight surrounding the trajectory of a drug addict. So I think I had that in the back of my mind and, you know, I always, I always defended like for me, drugs and alcohol were a real solution and seemingly viable because, you know, I talk about early life and abuse and and neglect and, you know, these kind of deficits or adverse childhood experiences. And um, this, I don't know if this is going to sound controversial, but to a large extent, I think drugs really saved my life because I was prone to depression and take that a little more dramatic and those thoughts that are associated. And, um, so was there a moment of clarity? Yeah, there, there was actually, I, um, I had kind of weaseled my way back into my parents' house and they had rules like, Oh, you have to have a job and you have to be up by 10 o'clock. And I remember I would like wake up in the morning and then like go to the backyard and just sleep. (laughs) Or I'd go, I'd go to the like TV room and lay down on the couch and my poor father, he'd come and be like, you're, you're still asleep. Like I wouldn't wake up until 6 PM. It was like, oh my God. it was horrible. I mean, granted, I was going to bed at about 10 AM, but you know, then I realized, you know, staying there was kind of a burn, you know, like, like it, it sucked, like having people breathing down my back. So I did the couch surfing thing for a while, you know, I, I'd stay with friends, but the problem is when you or I'll speak for myself, when I'm using drugs in a very self-destructive manner, people that care about me in any regard are not going to want to take part in that. So even these kind of people I've grown up partying with or, you know, committing petty crimes with, they started saying, like, you can't be here. We're not going to watch you do this. 
so options started running out, you know, um, it's funny too, cause I was so sensitive, like it, despite running from all my feelings, I had, a, I had, I had gone to college and, um, I remember it was right before I withdrew, people were starting to make arrangements for where they were going to live the next year. Cause we all had gotten apartments and stuff. And I remember my roommate had gone behind my back and signed a lease with somebody else because like, you know, they talk about activities of daily living. Like I, I couldn't, like I, I was a whole function. Yes. Simply stated. Yes. Like no one wanted me around, but I can remember, like I was so hurt. I felt so betrayed. And, uh, you know, so that's what started happening outside of the scholastic realm. No one wanted me around. So I had met some guys that had this tool shed on Pico and Alvarado, which back in 2003, 2004 was, it was like such a bad area. I mean, it still is bad to this day, but, um, it's close enough to downtown where you could kind of hoof it there. And yeah, they had this converted tool shed and they were like, yeah, you can stay here. They, they liked me. And you know, they, in my mind, they were lower companions. So I didn't feel as bad about myself. And, um, this weird sequence of events took place and I'd been told that I had an opportunity to get help. And I can vividly remember one of the guys was probably in his early fifties. To me, that was like, he, you know, he was a bum. I just was like, this guy's a bum. He's, he's a junkie. I'll never be that bad. And I was talking to him while getting high about how my mother had said I could go to the hospital and, you know, hand, hand to God, it's like time slowed down. And this clarity came over this dude's eyes. Like I saw it and he said, you should get help. And for whatever reason coming from him and maybe I was just the right amount of high, but like I, I heard it and was like, holy smokes, like I I guess I'm gonna take some suggestion. But but what's even crazier is uh I hope this isn't like too much war stories, is it? Well, okay. No, no. What's he okay, so a couple of days before I'd been crashing up, I went to school in Santa Barbara. That's where I um well, that's where I was enrolled in college. That's where I was enrolled. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what's sad. So I, you know, my brothers had taught me that if I kept everything on the outside looking good, people wouldn't interfere with my drug use. So in high school, I was partying like crazy, but they had these advanced placement classes. And I took between my junior and senior year, I think I took 10 of them and I passed every single one. So when I went to the University of California I'm at orientation just out of my mind. And the the woman who's facilitating the like signing up, she's like, dude, you're farther along in school than I am. And I'm like, excuse me? Like I entered, I entered college halfway through a sophomore year. Yeah, it wasn't good for me because I was like, so what you're saying is I can take like one class and I'll still be on right, track. Right. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I learned exactly. how to work that system. I had class like one day a week. It was awesome. I, I I definitely got that same message. Like, keep your shit together on the outside and people will leave you alone about the stuff you're doing. I just couldn't do the outside part. Yeah, it always catches up. <laughs> yeah. I can remember the last, before I withdrew from school, I was like, there was stuff going on in my life that was bad, but like also me just lying. And I can remember like going to my teachers, like, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, my my brother just <laughs> overdosed on heroin and he's in the hospital. That was actually true. But these But every week it was like, something horrible. Like I got to go to LA and intervene on my brother. Like my grandma just died. Like these people were like, Oh my God, like what a train wreck. <laughs> oh my God. They're like, yeah, you do well in school, but can't 
Yeah, not even Every even that started summer. slipping. I couldn't. Totally. Know. Yes. Anyways, I uh, the the last day I got or the day before I got sober, I kind of came to terms with I'm going to go to treatment. But this weird synchronistic event took place. I had been up in Santa Barbara, and I was the only one of my peer group that knew how to perform the chemical reaction of turning powder cocaine into crack cocaine. And I had I had cooked up a bunch, and this guy had gotten a taste for it. And obviously he couldn't stop thinking about it because he called me. I'm kind of contemplating going to treatment. And this guy calls me up and is like, hey, look, where are you? And I'm like, well, I'm in L.A. And he said, I'm going to drive there right now. And I have $500. And if you take me to spend that money on aforementioned substance, I will smoke it all with you. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'll see you at the corner. Yeah. done. (laughs) But that's what's so crazy. So. That was the day before. Yeah, that was on July 24th. And we parked his car around the corner from my parents' house. And I, I say this and people are like, you're crazy. But I, I literally believe that I smoked so much crack that I had a moment of clarity. I, and- I think that's amazing. Like, I I really appreciate that. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe that's just like from one junkie to another. Like, I smoked myself into a moment of... I, I feel like... No, I smoked so much that I got out of the car. I said to the guy, I was like, yeah, I said, I got to go. I'm going to rehab or like I'm going to treatment. And I walked to my parents' house, knocked on the door and was like, let's go to the airport. And they bought a ticket for a red eye because the whole situation was also weird. My, my, my aunt was dying of cancer and she was young. She was like, 42 at the time, three kids, like really tragic. So my dad had to be there and my mom needed to be there. So they were like, we'll figure out treatment, just come with us. And I also had 400 clonopins. So I knew that, you know, I could probably, Whatever we- happens. I, yeah, yeah, I could, I could weather the storm. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was I started popping the pills and then this sequence of events took place. I can tell you them, but the short version is I blacked out on my way to the airport and woke up the following day in a hospital with no recollection of how I'd gotten there. (laughs) Now, what had really happened was I had lost consciousness and my dad went through my stuff and found my pills and threw them all away. And upon his disclosing that action to me, I got very angry and uh, caused a bit of a scene and some witnesses called the police. So I got taken to a hospital, strapped down to a gurney. Was this before or after you, like, had you made it to Florida yet? No, this was in Minnesota. Yeah, th- yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm throwing you some curveballs. Yeah. Wait, so how'd you get to Minnesota? That's where my aunt was. My aunt oh, was, yeah. oh, okay, 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 okay. So, so I wake up in this place, Fairview Riverside Medical, Medical Center, and zero recollection of how I got there. I can't leave. You know, I don't think it was a psych facility, but I was like to the nurses, like, let me out of here. And they said, well, you have to sign paperwork and we can't release you for, I think it was 36 hours. So I signed the paperwork and I'm like, oh my God, like I got to get out of here, you know? But they gave me some good medicine. They got me on Suboxone and Phenobarbital and Trazodone <laughs> and Seroquel and like all mm-hmm. the good, all, oh, all the yeah. good stuff. Oh yeah. So I kind of just chilled out. And, um, you know, Hospital I had, version of Netflix and chill. <laughs> yeah. Except that, that place sucked. Cause there was a community room and the guys that had been there longer got control of the TV and they would always want to watch like 
I don't even know if Law and Order existed back then. You know, I think it was like Law and Order. Yeah, it did. Wait, so, but it wasn't a psych ward, right? I don't know. I think it was a detox. Okay, it was okay. Okay, yeah, because but it was lockdown. It was a county hospital, and um, so I have no idea how I got there. And then they're like, "Our recommendation is more treatment." And I'm like, "Whatever." And I did, you know, maybe a week and a half there, and then I discharged. But as previously stated, I was cooked. So my parents tried taking me to uh, Hazelden, you know, in uh, the Center for Youth and Families. It was like a young adult program. And when I got there to do my intake, they told them, they said, we're not taking him. Like, he's too far gone. Like, he needs more time sober before he can admit. And I'm like, like who are you wow. calling far gone? Yeah. <laughs> so, so they, uh, yeah, they... I mean, it's kind of crazy, but I have family in Minnesota that has like farmland. They like, they raise cattle. So my parents just left me on a farm with my, with my detox meds. And I dried out there for maybe a week and a half. And, um, you know, the other thing I'll mention is I couldn't be left alone. So my dad took me to my aunt's house and she's on hospice and she's on her way out. And he's like, I'm going to leave you alone with her. And, uh, Talk about God shots or moments of import. But I remember I'm alone with my aunt. She's dying. It was her last day on earth. And she's gasping for air. And I look on her bedside table and there's a big bottle of liquid morphine. And when you're dying or that far gone, there's a it's a there's a a sponge, sort of like a lollipop, but instead of candy, there's a sponge and you put it on their gums or in their mouth so it absorbs through that membrane. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, I can totally take that. Like, that looks good. And then I I don't know where it came from, but another thought came in like, man, like this woman is literally dying and she has no control and no choice. And you've been consciously killing yourself. You know, I've been hospitalized. I've overdosed. I've had serious health complications related to drug addiction and alcohol use. You know, I've consciously been destroying my life. And uh, it was this really bizarre juxtaposition. And I'm not going to say that's why I got sober. But in that moment, I, uh, I have to believe that seeing someone who was a fundamentally good person dying had an impact on me. And she passed. I was there. And, um, you know, I did finally get into treatment. It was a 30-day program. They extended that. And then they, they told me that um, my psychiatric symptoms were too severe Wow. And, and they referred me to a long-term dual diagnosis program in South Florida. Now, I will say, in my defense, all those symptoms went away. But, I mean, I was, I was really far gone, you know. I was hallucinating and extremely paranoid. Dist- like, I didn't trust anyone. And that's what always trips me out now when I look at treatment. You know, these average lengths of treatment are, you know, at most, at most 90 days. That's pushing it. Oh, and- God. And I was preaching to the choir. Yeah, I was I was done. I I, I wasn't sane until I had maybe four or five months. And by by sane, I just mean the ability to like reason. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, Yeah. I went to, you know, our, our mutual friend, Brandon, like we went to a year long program together when we were when I was a teenager and he was 20. And, you know, and being in the industry and seeing like these programs, you know, for me, I, I was lucky in the sense that I went to this long-term program and then I ended up going while like 
eight months sober, I ended up going to the meadows and doing treatment there. And I just remember like, had I gone and this was, you know, meadows is superior, you know, clinician, yeah. like real, real deal. And yeah. yeah, the best. And I just remember being there thinking like, if I had come in here at 30 days, like if I had start, like I came in here to detox and then 30 days, like I wouldn't have absorbed anything. I wasn't absorbing. It took me like five to six. I relapsed and treat multiple treatments. It took me six months to stop fighting, to stop lying and fighting and trying to say the right thing. And I just, 30 days is like, that's a detox. That's it's, it's funny you say that. And I'm not trying to jump ahead, but two years ago, I opened up a uh, 40 bed detox and residential facility in Washington. And when I talk about it, I tell people this isn't going to be the end all be all. If anything, this is stabilization, you know, because in my mind, five days in detox is not enough. You need about 30 days for the the mind and the body and the just physiology to kind of return to some form of homeostasis. And from there, you need continuing services. And evidence suggests that in order for treatment to really be effective, you got to be receiving services for, I mean, two years. A year. Well, a year yeah. at minimum. 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 I mean, I think that one of the craziest things is the, like you said, the physiology, the the science, okay, the neuroscience around this is 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 in contrast with with what's happening with the 30-day model. I mean, it is absolutely insane, particularly with people with heavy, heavy use. I mean, when I when I, you know do work with families and stuff. And I'm like, don't spend your money on the 30 days. No like I, I, I always say to people like you have, you know, you have got to look at this as a long-term thing. If you only have 20 grand, 40 grand, whatever it is, you know, five grand, whatever it is, we need to look at how to allocate that. Because if you, you know, buying it like, and the other thing is going to treatment for 30 days, going to, you know, a, a hundred thousand dollar treatment for 30 days and then not doing anything after is like buying a Bentley and never getting an oil change. Like it's insane. It's insane. Just don't do it. Yeah. Or like buying a Bentley and not being able to afford gas. <laughs> right, yeah. Like you can't, I, I'm, I'm with you completely. Yeah. And, and I'm not trying to be some anti-hero about treatment. Like this is what I've done for a living, but I think to a large extent, the contemporary model of treatment is failing. And, you know, I think what you just said is so near and dear to my heart. It's it's about the long game because I'll be honest, my first four months, I thought about getting high probably every single day. I mean, that's that's just being honest. And I don't think that means I wasn't working a program or I wasn't serious. I mean, I went to groups, I participated in therapy, but when you develop a relationship with a substance and that substance is literally saving your life or alleviating all of the underlying emotional pain that you've been running from for a lifetime to take that away. That's when, when I work with families, that's what I always try and convince them. I say, you have to understand what asking someone to get sober really mm -hmm. means. Yes. 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 Because beyond coping with pain, there's also the existential quality because I'll be honest, like, I identified as a drug addict. Mm -hmm. my, my there was nothing else. Right. My, my persona, my friends, my social group, the music I listened to, everything about me was associated with that lifestyle. So you take that away and there's this huge void. And I'm not alluding to the, the spiritual void, which I believe in, but I'm talking, if I'm not 
a drug addict, then who am I? And that question, who am I, is what normal people struggle with. So not only have I lost my means of coping, but I also now have to solve what is my meaning and purpose in life and what do I do now? And all of the pain and suffering and shame and guilt is flooding back. And I think that a lot of people miss that. I love, I say to, I I say to families, like a lot of the time I say, because if you want to know how to support someone getting sober, you, you know, you really should seek professional guidance with that. I mean, it's so valuable. It changed my family's dynamic and people are like, well, it's not my problem or whatever the, the, you know, I'm not the one doing stealing from whatever it is. And I would say like, you have no idea. You're asking them to change everything about them and you're not willing to do an hour a week. Like you, you, you don't understand. You can't understand what you're asking of this person. And the support is, is minuscule in comparison. And, and the other, the other thing is we are asking people to remove like you said, the one thing in their life that was working because nothing else, like it got to the point where it wasn't working, but the one consistent thing in their life that they could count on and become a new person. And you're asking them to do it in 30 days. And and that doesn't even touch on the stigma and the judgment Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the idea that this is some kind of moral deficit. I remember I was in grad school and it, the hardest class I had to take was addiction studies because oh yeah, oh, I'm, yeah. A, I'm a know it all and they got some professor trying to talk about like whatever. It, I, I had to tell one of my classmates like if you see me raise my hand, kick me because I was like working <laughs> in treatment and thought I yeah, knew yeah, yeah. stuff. But there was one assignment they gave the the, the students that I actually it's kind of corny, but I did appreciate it. And and for the duration of the course, they asked everyone to give up something that was a huge source of comfort for them. So, you know, some people would give up sugar or some people would give up television and they had to kind of process what it was like to let go of a crutch. And I I, I appreciated that a little bit just from the guise of understanding what this process involves. Because beyond getting sober, it's also relearning how to live. And every reaction, every emotion, you know, all these things that drive us, we have to learn how to navigate them, you know, how to not flip out or, you know, or how to not, or, or, or in my case, like how to tell the truth. Like, Oh my God. I, I, I mean, I would tell, I would lie to you about things I didn't need to lie, like what I ate for breakfast. I mean, it was like, and I, I couldn't tell you why. I mean, it just, I think, I think some of it was like, it just, I felt less vulnerable probably if I, I don't know, like, or it was a power thing. I don't know what it was, but I just, I remember thinking, I remember at times saying to people like, that was a lie. I need to tell like, <laughs> like really awkward, horrible stuff. Like in the first couple years of my sobriety, I stole money from my parents and like had and in, in a not overt not not in a like overt way, but basically used their card to buy things that I didn't. And it was like, I had to say like, you know, I had to seriously learn and how to be a normal human. And it was like, almost, you know, I can, I do understand why people think it's a moral dilemma because we do you relearn. Stuff. Yeah. Because we're, 
assholes. And yeah, and so we do bad stuff. But part of that was programming of survival in my head, which was like, in order to get the things that I need, I need to capitalize on any possible opportunity that that appears to get that. And and so you took away the drugs and alcohol, but you didn't, I didn't rewire, it took me years to rewire those coping mechanisms and those those instant reactions to opportunities. And, and that's where it looks like a moral, I think that's where we look like more morally defective, you know, ba- ba- defective, bankrupt, yeah, yeah. which is, which is not, I mean, it, it, n- none of those characteristics are how I act today whatsoever, but I really did, you know, damage to my brain. I was not, a, I was, I had to learn how to be a normal person. I think my big problem too was, uh, I would want credit for doing things that normal people oh, do. Yeah. Like I would expect applause for showing up to work or like, yeah, I'm not saying this recently, but like, you know, like not cheating on a girlfriend and be like, you know, like you should give me some credit. And it's like, wait, credit for being a decent person. Like, absolutely. Do you know how hard it is to be a decent person? Right. <laughs> Oh, I mean, that's the truth though. Like, like I, I totally get that because for me, my, my struggles, the most difficult things I face are in the most normal mundane moments The the everyday, just like being a normal person is the hardest thing in the world for me. Extraordinary circumstances. I'm your girl. Like I can do extraordinary chaos. I can do crazy. I can do high-end thinking. I can do all that, you know, just wild stuff. But uh, laundry, laundry is going to, I mean, that shit makes me want to drink. Like, it just, oh, don't get like, me, don't get me started on household stuff. It's, it's, if I, if I take out the trash, I want a gold star. I mean, that's what I mean. Like, it's like, I'm like, well, so like, I have to put the clothes away every time they come out of the dryer. Like, for the rest of my life. Like, I don't know that I can live this way. Like I have to, so tax it, you know, just like normal human being shit. I'm like, Oh my God. But again, like extraordinary circumstances, I'm fine. Well, and for me getting sober at 20, there was a bunch of, (laughs) there was a bunch of life stuff that I never learned. Uh And what's what's funny is uh, there's still weak points for me. Like I, I me too. Because I sort of learned how to like survive while being sober, but you know, paying bills. Yeah. You know, I had to wait until my phone got cut off, and then I'd be like, "Oh, I guess I better pay it," or just things of that nature. Just learning how this is. This is one of my embarrassing, but just so classic and funny. I didn't know how. Like I could wire. um, I you know used. an empty AM radio frequency to wiretap my parents' house so that I could know what they're doing, even though it was too high to like pay attention to that. But we used, you know, computer chips to wire, blah, 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 blah. So I could figure that stuff out, but I didn't really understand how the banking system worked because I got a checkbook and this is in sobriety. I had my checkbook and I'm learning to live life. I'm whatever. And I thought that when you write a check, that <laughs> you write a check and you don't have all the money in the account. So that they give you at the time they used to give you the money. So they give you the money and then you would get a $32 charge, right? For, for kiting the check. And then, you know, you'd put the money back in and all would be, well, I thought that was a loan. 
<laughs> like I, I was like, well, cause this is right. Like kind of high level thinking of like, well, you pay to borrow money and the bank, right? Like, and so this system, I, I was like doing this all the time because I thought I was paying $32 to borrow that money for the time, you know, like I just had no idea on how to do normal life stuff. I mean, I got a phone call that I won a camera and they needed my bank account number. I gave it to him. I thought I won this camera. I was very excited. Yeah. I mean, I just, I was like not a normal person because my whole childhood, my whole teenagehood was about figuring out ways to get money in order to sustain this habit and work and survive in a world where things were dangerous and different. And it just, I had no, no life skills. Yeah. I was like a feral cat. Yeah. (laughs) Like I I was lucky. I went to a long-term treatment program and, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of critique these days about behavioral modification, but as a therapist, I do believe that changing behavior is the most direct path towards changing concept of self or mm. thoughts yes. and feelings. Yes. And that may be reductive, but it it's kind of like CBT 101. And I was very fortunate that this place was like, if you don't make your bed, you get a strike. If you leave a dish in the sink, you get a strike. If you leave clothes in the washing machine, you get a strike. If you leave clothes in the dryer, you get a strike. If your hamper is over the the top, like filled with dirty clothes, you get a strike. If you didn't turn the thermostat to 78 degrees before you left the unit, you got a strike. So it was this very punitive, you know, three strikes and you're not going out on the weekend and you have to write words, but it created this discipline and structure that I had never had, you know, but think about it. It's like, you're getting high. It's like, I sleep when I want, I eat when I want, if I'm eating, I go to the bathroom outside I, I, I lie, I cheat, I steal, I do whatever I need to do. Like it's lawless. It's lawless. Yeah. Yeah. And we are, we're completely, I went to a long-term program with a, with Brandon where it was the same thing and, and some of it stuck, but I had never done, I, when my parents said to me, it was really interesting when during family weeks and stuff. And when I was like, why didn't you ever tell me what credit was? Because before I turned it upside down or why didn't you ever, I never learned this or whatever it was. And they said, Ashley, like you were shooting heroin when you were 15 and 16 years old. Like there was never, we were afraid you were going to die. There was no life skill that was pertinent other than not killing yourself during your teenage years. There was nothing else to teach you. So by the time I took away that thing, I was, I, I was so lost and it was such an, I will say this too, and it was a self-esteem thing that was very difficult to overcome too, because I was, you know, theoretically an adult and couldn't do these things. And that made it difficult to stay sober in some degree because I had no, you know, identity and no self-esteem and and no capabilities. So like, I literally felt like a 20 year old child, well, and then I don't know about you, but, you know, I would suffer from imposter syndrome, yes. you know, like, especially as uh, my career developed and I started making some progress, you know, like I didn't know how to tie a tie. I never learned that because I was, I was busy. And like, 
there's an element of humiliation. Like I have to look online at a set of instructions and just yes. in my defense, I do know how to tie a tie now, <laughs> but I even, you know, I can remember for years I had the same tie and I never took the knot out just so I could put it on and tighten it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, and I'm going out in the world and, and socializing and interacting with these people. And I just feel so small and, and uh, like a phony. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's, I, I think a lot of that is what, doesn't get talked about. And it's not to say that this process of recovery is just horrible all the time. Like I can tell you, I, I had fun. I've traveled. I've, I've, I've done all types of cool stuff, but it's been a long road imbued with consistent diligence and hard work. You know, like you said from the gate, you know, it's, it's, I think consistency is what doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah. And how hard that is. Well, if you lack discipline, like I do doing anything consistently is a challenge. You know, mm-hmm. I do. I do lack discipline. So, okay. So a couple things. So you started working in treatment after getting sober and you have, you've had this long career in treatment. You, and were you a clinical director at clean? No, I can briefly talk about treatment. So I, I, um, I'd worked in the restaurant industry and I was working with this guy's sponsee and I had helped the kid out a lot. And he told his sponsor, like, this guy, Chris is awesome. And his sponsor was an LCSW or maybe a, uh, I guess like an associate working at a treatment center in Florida. So he, he hit me up and said, why don't you apply for a job? It's entry level, but it'd be a great experience and you'll make a lot of money. And I said, sure thing. So it's kind of a point of pride, but I was the youngest person ever hired by the Karen foundation. Like I had that as a record, you know, I was 20, it's amazing. I was 22 years old and I got hired and, um, you know, they said you have no experience, so you have to work graveyard and, mm-hmm. you know, I was working graveyard shift by myself with like 120 clients. And that was my introduction to working in treatment. Then, um, around 2007, 2008, my brother had his first kid and which one, uh, Robert and, uh, well, there's two parts to the story. One is he had a kid and I wanted to be present for him. The other yeah. part was I was in college in Florida trying to finish up my undergraduate degree. And I found out that I had to take a math class. Mm. <laughs> and um, this is just brutal honesty, but I'm so bad at math. I, I, I suck at math. And the University of California, instead of math, it's a category called quantitative reasoning. So it's math or science, which can satisfy the math requirement. So I called up the University of California and was like, hey, you know, do you think I might be able to come back to school? And because I had withdrawn and I never like failed or anything, they were like, sure, where have you been? So I kind of made this decision in part because of <laughs> the birth of my nephew, nephew, but also maybe in all honesty about my fear of taking math. I moved back to California and then I got a job working in Malibu when I got home at some private uber fancy facility that no longer exists and um you know i did like some management and tech work and finished my undergrad degree and then i went over to clean as sort of a manager like operations guy and i started working in admissions and working with the director of operations and i got kind of indoctrinated into uh the more administrative side of treatment and ironically, what happened was I got passed up for a promotion and there wasn't a lot of good justification for it. 
or the the management I was receiving wasn't good, so I messed up, and I was like, oh my god! And I had this kind of moment of I don't want to say fear or panic, but I was like, if I'm an employee the rest of my life, I don't really have security, and that coupled with a lot of what I would consider good insight that wasn't really validated or listened to because of a lack of a credential. So I decided to go back to school and get my master's degree. And I got my master's in clinical psychology and then pivoted from sort of the administrative operations lens to, you know, a therapist and, you know, more of a director role. And that's probably when our paths crossed. Yeah. After, yeah. after meeting at IHOP. At- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I hadn't seen you since then. You send me a therapist. It was awesome. Hey, you know, you gotta do something, right? Yeah, I do. I do. So another big milestone for you. When so you when did you meet Shauna? When did you guys get married and you meet and get married? You won't believe this. Our six year anniversary was yesterday. So we got married in 2014. We met in 2010. So we've been together for 10 years. And uh you know, I probably shouldn't say this. We met at work, you know, we were working mm-hmm. together and, mm-hmm. you know, the rest is history. Yeah. And, uh, and Shauna, there's a, a an age gap between you guys, right? Yes. There's, I'm trying to remember, is she older or are you older? She's older. Okay. Okay. By a bit. And by a bit, by how much? 16 years. Awesome. And uh, and you guys got married in 2014. Yeah, April 26th. Awesome. And uh, you had a big event in 2016. What happened there? Well, I mean, lots a lot happened. I, I always tell people that um, if you look at the year from 2015 through 2016, if you're familiar, with, if you ever read the Bible, the, the story of Job, you familiar with that story? I'm not. So he's this guy that's like, look, and I'm not, I'm not a religious dude. I just remember I had to read it in high school, but he's like this very devout, faithful guy and God and the devil make a bet. And the devil says, I bet I can make him not believe in you. And God's like, all right, let's make this bet. So they, they, they curse him. And first they, they kill all of his livestock. Then they, Oh yes, I do remember this story. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They wind up killing his entire family. That's kind of what 2015 was like for me. Um, July of 2015, I was I was on a run, and I get a phone call. I was a my best friend's emergency contact, and I get a phone call from the hospital saying, "You need to get here. He's in the ICU." And um, sober guy, best friend, and um, we were in a band together for like six years. And uh, yeah, I get to the hospital, and he was in a motorcycle accident, and unfortunately died on impact. So is this um Curtis. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Curtis. So that was July. Yeah, he was I mean, he helped me a lot. And then 3 months later in well maybe not 3, but November of 2015, I'm at the gym. I maybe I shouldn't work out because every time I'm working out I get bad phone calls. <laughs> So it's November, it's like early to mid November and I get a phone call from the police that my wife has overdosed and is in the mm-hmm. hospital and I'm like, "Oh my god." And I was working in Malibu at that time. So I'm like racing. Did you was that out of nowhere? Like was that was it like you knew she was struggling, you knew like You know, um or was it like do 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 your wife overdosed? No, it 
So I'd say in in February of, and my timeline might be a tiny bit off, but February of 15, my wife got, she got fired because of drug use. And, um, or maybe that's not the reason, but she had relapsed and, and wound up going to treatment in February of that year. And after how long sober? A couple of years. It's hard to be exact because I think there may have, you know, yeah, yeah, there had been a struggle before that too. You know, there had been struggle kind of consistently for maybe a year leading up to that. And then she went to treatment. And then after treatment, there was that sort of dilemma of going in and out. And it's funny because she had worked in treatment for so long, probably at that point, seven years. And it's this funny, I, I don't want to call it a double standard because it's fair, but I think when when people, myself included, over-identify with one part of their lives, if that part gets taken away, it leaves that same sort of void. Mm, and for people yeah. that are in recovery that work in the recovery field, if you relapse, you're persona non grata. Like, mm, you know, it's yeah. like, hey, call us when you have two years. Whereas like, you know, a normie can go out and like party on the weekend and have a job. Right. But from February of 15... Up until that November of 15, she, uh, you know, there was there was just struggle. And um, so then she went to treatment again in November of 2015. And then on January 22nd, I got a phone call that my brother had died of a heroin overdose. And he had been sober for a while and had been out for about 10 days. So November your wife goes to treatment. Yeah. Then July, my best friend dies. No, no. The, we could say February, wife goes to treatment. July, my... February 2015? Yeah. February 2015, wife goes to treatment. July 2015, best friend dies. November 2015, wife ODs, it goes back to treatment. And then January of 16, my brother dies. And in that same year, I hate to this, this I'm not trying to sound morbid, but I, uh, my brother also had a third child and he passed away of uh, SIDS in March of 15. The uh, J Robert, J or Robert, R- Robert, Robert's wife or, or girlfriend was pregnant when he died. No, no, no. I'm, I apologize. It's a really tragic year, but my brother had gone to treatment in 2014 in December. And he got out of treatment end of 2014 and was sober to be present for the birth of his third child. And Sylvester was born in February and died three weeks later. And what was crazy is my brother stayed sober through that. Like everyone anticipated, you know, oh man, like if any, if there's ever a reason to go out, right, like, right. He, like it was almost, I'm not going to say a permission slip, but it was kind of like expected. Kind of, yeah. Uh, it sounds like a permission slip. And he stayed. He stayed sober through all that. He made it ten months after his son's passing, and then you know relapsed in July of 2016, and was you know, I mean, sorry, January of 2016, and um, was dead ten days later. Do you have like some PTSD about answering calls from people you don't know after mm-hmm. that year? Mm-hmm. Like, or I back up. What did that year like? what was that? I mean, aside from hell, what was that? What did that year do to you? How did it change you? I mean, there's a couple of different ways to answer that. You know, it it forced a lot of growth. There's this idea that they talk about like pain is the touchstone of spiritual progress. And 
I think I always differentiate between progress and growth. Growth implies sort of an enlarging, whereas progress is moving forward. So I think to a large extent, it pushed me to grow. Like I can tell you like the first time Shauna went to treatment, it was very jarring for me. And I talk a lot about, you know, issues of identity. And I think so much of myself was wrapped up in the relationship and being a husband and losing that there was just this palpable void. You know, I don't look back on it with with pride, you know, it was kind of pathetic on my part. Like I can remember like she was in treatment and Saturday, I would run around town and pick up the things that she needed. And I'd go to Marshall's and get a pair of slippers and go to the smoke shop and get a carton of cigarettes. And then Sunday, I would drive to Malibu just to like see her, you know, it was very codependent. And, um, you know, I had to I had to look at that because she went to treatment and my life sort of fell apart. And, you know, it's not not any beef with the people in my life. But the other thing is when when it and I'm sure you probably experienced this a little bit just having kids and being married. But when you stop returning calls and stop hanging out with people, eventually they leave you alone. You know, my friends, like every time they'd invite me out, I'd say, oh, no, I'm hanging out with my wife or I'm doing this or sorry, I can't today. So it's not like my phone was blowing up with things to do. So I was just completely alone and just kind of devastated. And I remember this, like waiting to get that call at night before bed, like, oh, my God, like I need it was like a drug, you know, but it also pushed me to dive further into myself and get help from other programs. And I started, you know, I'll self-disclose and say I started going to Al-Anon and, you know, it taught me a lot about the impact I had had on people in my life. I'm not saying it was karmic, but it was, it was a, it was a real opportunity to work. Yeah. Yeah. I keep saying that. So I don't want to sound redundant, but yeah, it was. was, No, but it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of like what we were talking about in the very beginning, like staying sober a long time, shit happens and you get opportunities to grow and you either take them, you know, they say you grow or you go and you, and you, you know, that oppor- that could have been an opportunity to get loaded. Most definitely. And what's what's crazy is uh, we were talking earlier about hindsight and, you know, the way things work out in life. I'm not going to suggest it's divinely ordered, but, you know, every experience kind of has led towards different facets or aspects of my life that in, in, in looking back on them have had tremendous meaning. You know, just an example is you know, having a loved one that struggles or relapses or violates the trust. Because the thing, when I work with couples and one of them's addicted, the, the thing that's challenging is having a partner that's addicted feels very similar to an affair because the same behaviors are present. You know, there's lying, there's concealing, there's kind of gaslighting. Like, it's really awful. And as a recovering drug addict, my instinct is oftentimes to run. Like, that's what I'm good at is like, you know, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm just see you later. And, you know, there probably could have been justification to say, you know what, I'm, I'm throwing in the towel and this is too much. And, and the craziest part is I would have been validated. People in my life would have probably said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But there's also, you know, depending on your beliefs related to recovery, But there's this idea of spiritual principles and, you know, perseverance being a really important one. And, you know, when I really thought about it, you know, I'm not immune. You know, there's a chance that I could struggle and I I may struggle and I have struggled, maybe not 
relapsing, but with other things, you know, whether it's depression or being an asshole, you know, like these, these are parts of my character and the sort of synchronicity of everything is worth mentioning because, you know, I made a decision to stay in the relationship and I, I don't regret it. I, I don't. And the last time there was a relapse, there, there, there was a firm ultimatum. You know, in Al-Anon, they say, don't make a threat you're not willing to keep. And that was something I always struggled with. I'd kind of set a bottom line and then it would get crossed. And I'd say, okay, well, next time. But I remember going to the hospital and saying, you know, I'm going home, I'm packing a suitcase, and I'm taking you from here to rehab. And if this happens again, I'm sorry, like I'm, I'm out. It wasn't easy to say, but, but I, I was at my breaking point. And since then, she's coming up on five years. And I'm not attributing her recovery to the ultimatum, but I do think that... No, no, understood. I do think that there's some import, you know, but I, I was talking about synchronicity. And what's crazy is, um, so she went to treatment and it's, it's kind of cool from a perspective angle. Because the second time she went to treatment, I had learned how to take care of myself. You know, I had been going to meetings and I had redeveloped peer support and my own recovery and the resources I could pull upon. So when she went to treatment the second time, yeah, I wasn't happy, but my life was a lot more full. You know, I had a friend that told me the idea of self-care is that you surround yourself by supportive elements so that when life comes at you, none of life can't ever get to you. You know, yeah, it might take away this fitness routine or your meeting attendance or therapy, but it never gets to your self. If that, I don't know if that makes sense. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. the things I do to take care of myself are a safeguard against life and what life can throw at me. For simply stated, but she was she was in treatment and then went to outpatient and was living in sober living, and um, it was so crazy. Like it was a Friday night and. She had a midnight curfew and we had gone to a meeting and we're hanging out, just watching TV, kind of just, you know, still trying to resolve issues of trust and whatnot. And my phone started ringing and it was my brother's friend who I knew he was using with. And I'd been trying to help his friend get into treatment. You know, I I, I work in treatment. I I I'd like to think I help a lot of people just in terms of getting in and offering whatever resources I have available. So I'd talked to him the day before about, you know, Hey, you can go to Brotman, you know, you're, you're covered here. Like, let's, you know, get you in. And that's just on strength. You know, it's not what I do for a living, but, um, so he called and I ignored the call and he called again and I ignored it and he called again and I ignored it. And I think by the seventh time he had called, I uh, I was like, damn, like maybe I should pick up, like, you know. <laughs> so I answer the phone, and um, you know, he says, he says, you know, Chris, Robert's dead, and my brother, you know, I didn't talk much about it, but my brother had a really like morbid sense of humor, and like he would pull pranks. He was never about his own death, but you know, I I just figured they were on meth, and I said. I said, you know, bull, bullshit, like, that's not even funny, dude. Like, and he, yeah, he says, yeah. no, I'm serious. You know, I'm here with the police. And I said, yeah, right. Like, let me talk to the cop. And then, you know, the phone gets handed over and it's a police officer. And I still didn't believe it and said, you know, this is f-ed up. What kind of prank is this? And relatively quickly, 
I realized it wasn't a joke. And, you know, that in and of itself was really messed up because they wouldn't let me go see the body because it was a crime scene. And why was it a crime scene? When there's an overdose, they have to do an autopsy to rule out if it was a murder or accidental overdose. And, you know, they had, they had to do toxicology and get the coroner there. And so they wouldn't let me come see him. And uh, I say all of that because Shauna was with me when I got the news. And um, had she not been there, I really can't say what would have happened. I don't think I would have killed myself. I don't know that I would have relapsed. But I can be honest and say that there was a moment where I thought, you know, I should just go get a bottle of whiskey and call it a night. And that didn't happen. So, you know, is it a coincidence? I'm not sure. But this, you know, decision to stay in something and it ultimately led to a really unique role reversal because I didn't handle the death very well. And uh, what does that mean? I don't know about you, but what I've found is when I'm in close relationship to someone, they oftentimes can become sort of an object for my own emotion or feeling. And all I mean is like the anger I could project out because it was too much for me to sit with. So having someone there, I could easily just lash out and be unkind and be mean and cold and not nice. So it was this, you know, as previously stated, this really weird role reversal where, you know, the caretaker became the one that was cared for. And, um, you know, I mean, that, that was, that was gnarly. Like I had to, I had to call my parents and tell them that Robert had died and, you know, 1130 at night, like hey, mom and dad, like Robert's dead. You know, it was, it was horrible. Were, were, are they, were they in LA? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. We had, we all had this phenomenon where when we would use, we would all stay kind of close to where we grew up. Like, he died about a mile away from my parents' house. And did you have a relationship with your parents? Like, how often did you talk to your parents before you made that call? You know, it's it's that's another interesting thing to consider because, you know, the process of therapy and the steps and amends making and all that stuff had led to some healing. But I wasn't close with my family. I was very, I, I don't know how to describe it, except I would, I would fulfill all obligations. Like when called upon to do something, I would show up and I would keep my word. But it was never call and check in. Hey, how are you? Like I could go, you know, I, I live three miles away from my parents. I'd go like a month and a half, not talk to them. So I wasn't particularly close. No, no animosity or bad blood. Just it wasn't what I was doing. So yeah, the relationship was strained. And um, in hindsight, looking at everything that's happened since then, four years later, you know, my relationship has improved and I've been more present and shown up. And I don't I don't know what to attribute it to entirely, except, you know, just being more present. And, you know, that whole experience of his passing and, you know, giving a eulogy and planning a memorial and all these things like, I got to show up for my family in a way that I never had before. And I'm not suggesting that like in any way, shape or form, I'm happy my brother passed. But I can at least look, I can look now and say that I don't believe it was for nothing and that some good has come from it. And even his, oh, go ahead. He, he was a, um, he, he went by Cadillac Ron and, and he was a, he was a musician. He was a rapper, right? Yeah. And he was successful. 
Right. He, I mean, he was a big deal when he passed away. Yeah. And, um, you know, he and I had made albums together and, you know, he had, he had booked a European tour for January and the relapse happened two days before he was supposed to leave. And that always kind of tripped me out. Like, is it like that sort of self-sabotage or fear of success? Because another time he had relapsed, he was supposed to do an event on pay-per-view TV. It was going to be nationally televised. And he relapsed the night before that. So I always think, you know, huh, is it, is it that fear of success? Like, right. I don't think I'll ever understand why. And I don't, I don't need to know why. You know, from a spiritual lens, asking the question, why can imply a lack of faith in some ways, like not trusting that maybe there's a meaning or purpose to what has happened. But yeah, it was, it was, you know, probably the worst thing I've been through in my recovery. I mean, everything else leading up to that, the loss of a best friend and, you know, a wife that has struggled, all of these things kind of chipped away at me. But that death in particular, he and I were, he was the closest family relationship I had. And, um, you know, we had lived, he was sober for a long time and we had lived together for six years. And, you know, I had, uh, always maintained very close contact, even when like the family had sort of written him off, you know, I had gotten him into treatment a few times and I'm not saying that to put on airs. It's just, um, it was, it was the, the most devastating loss I've experienced. How do you think that you stayed sober? Like what in the moments where you wanted to be anesthetized, how, what did you do to stay sober? I'm not sure I can take credit for it. I I have to attribute it to the people around me. You had those people. You had those people around you. You built that peer support before this happened, which likely is the thing, right? Like, yeah. You can't take credit for it, but you brought those people there. Yeah. I mean, the things I learned early on in my recovery, I haven't changed very much. I've probably added to the to the arsenal of resources and tools. But, you know, this is going to sound like a slogan, but like if I don't leave the basics, I never have to go back to the basics. So I've mm-hmm. always stayed involved. Yeah, I like in, that. Well, how about this one? If you like if you like cliches, you know, it's like my, my problem hasn't changed. So why should my solution, you know, the, the things that have that worked for me when I had a year sober, they still work for me today. And then I will own that, you know, yeah, I've gotten outside help and I've done spiritual classes and gone to school and got degrees. Like all that stuff is great, but I still at at the core of what I do, it's, it's related to, you know, helping others and, you know, call it service and self-disclosure and cleaning house and trying to be in some kind of position of faith. And I'm not talking, you know, the Judeo Christian overtones of that statement, but some form of belief and trust that, the universe has my best interests at heart. So you're right. I mean, I did have a lot of peer support and and people showed up and people showed up when I told them not to and people dragged me out and people brought me food and people listened to me, you know, cry. And, um, you know, I, I think I was telling Christiana, it was, it was kind of crazy. Like I had been asked to speak at a 12-step meeting on Monday and my brother died on a Friday and uh, the secretary hit me up on Saturday, like, look, I know what's going on and we can easily get your slot covered. And I don't know why, but I, I told her, like, no, I'll be there. Like, that's kind of what I was taught or raised 
to do. It's like if I have a commitment, I show up for it. And I'm not, I probably need to be more present on social media, especially since I have like a career and and, a, and like a company. But um, I'm not super active on Facebook. I, I usually just have it to maintain communication with friends. But I made a post basically saying like, hey, look, I'm I'm speaking at this meeting. I could use support if anyone wants to come out. It would be really cool. And um, oh, my God, how many people should like I couldn't tell you it was it was standing room only. Like, I mean, it might sound like an exaggeration, but it seemed like maybe 200 people had showed up. I'd believe that. And some of them were people I hadn't seen in a while. Some of them were close friends, but it just was it was really impactful. And, um, you know, it gets me a little choked up, you know, not just talking about the death, but in some ways, I think that's the 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 beauty of this whole recovery process. You know, <clears throat> there's this expression I've always heard people say, they're like, you know, God's never going to give me more than I can handle. And I, I it's like, I, I beg to differ. It's like, I think the universe or God is always going to give me more than I can handle. However, it's not more than we can handle, you know, like the process of recovery, it, it cannot be done alone. It just, it can't. Yes. Thank you. I just want to echo that. Like, I just think that's like, really, really important. It cannot be done alone. What's interesting too, and I'm not trying to sound like an intellectual, but if you look at some of the greatest spiritual teachers of human history, all of them had a calling to carry their message or their beliefs. You know, like if you look at the story of Siddhartha, the Buddha, you know, the the guy attained enlightenment, like he, he had arrived, he got to the finishing point and chose to kind of stay on the earth and teach and guide and instruct. And, you know, you see that through all these different modalities of faith or religion or even just spirituality. And again, I'm not ascribing this to talk, you know, about, you know, Christianity or Judaism or Islam, but more just this imperative that as as a species, we are meant to have people in our lives. And it's been over the last maybe 300 years that there's been this push towards individuality and individualism and a move away from collectivism. I think that's why for some people, not everyone, but for some people, the 12-step programs have such an impact because it taps into something that's kind of ancient, you know, storytelling and and ritual and tradition and format and structure and these things that we've done for our entire evolution that we've moved away from. And we live in this world now where We feel as though we're more connected than ever before. But, you know, in the midst of a crisis, you know, most people could probably count on one hand how many people would show up. So it's it's this interesting kind of dichotomy because with what's going on related to shelter in place and coronavirus and, you know, we've had to embrace non-traditional means of connection, but it's working. You know, there's there's something there's something profound about it because, you know, you've seen like treatment or 12, 12 step recovery or just all these different means of healing that have worked despite, you know, the concern that was previously expressed about, you know, social media and isolation, if that makes sense. And I'm not trying to go off on such a tangent. I just, I think we're at this really unique point in time because I think we can agree that connection is imperative and we need it. And it's a necessary condition for recovery but it's not always an option. And the work you've done and what I've witnessed just 
in the last month or so has indicated that there are ways to connect that still have meaning and can, I think, tap into that sort of part of our spirit that needs to feel a part of something. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I was talking, I don't even remember who I was talking to, but I was talking about how Connection is a choice in that the same way that I can walk, the same way that I can walk into a room full of a hundred people and feel disconnected and feel alone, I can also, you know, find a way to connect with people online and, and in different modalities. And when I tell myself that I'm not, can, you know, when I tell myself I can't or it won't work or those types of things. I'm laying that groundwork for staying disconnected. And when I tell myself that I want connection and I can be there and I can show, you know, that that we can use, whether it's a phone call or, or a video conference or whatever it is, then those things happen. And I think a lot of the time, as I've seen it, you know, that we tell our, we, we tell ourselves a lot of things that aren't true and that leads us to lack of evolution. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've you seen know. a lot of people, at least friends or peers or colleagues that were very resistant to the transition to online formats. And what's fascinating is that once you work through the initial discomfort, the feedback I've received is that, you know, hey, this isn't that bad or it's not as bad as I thought it would be. So much of the process of recovery for myself has been learning how to tolerate previously intolerable feelings. Mm. And it totally. sucks because you tell that to someone that's new, like, hey, you're going to be really uncomfortable for a while and you just totally. have to sit in it and trust me that it's mm-hmm. going to get better. It's like, what the, like, I don't want to feel bad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, When I was getting high, I always had this awareness in the back of my mind that the relief I was experiencing was going to stop or wear off. Simply stated, I was going to come down. And my experience with sobriety and recovery is that there's an authenticity that my feelings or emotional states are real and they're not contingent upon what I have ingested. Now they might have some relevance to, you know, did I exercise or did I sleep enough? Yeah. But what I experience is real and it's not in peril of if I run out of a substance, then I'm not going to feel good. You know, I, I, I like real and authentic things, you know, and there's an ability to be present, that anxiety of, oh, my God, I can't come down. I don't want to come down. That's no longer present. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, when I hear people talk about like, oh, wine has the worst hangover or this has a hangover or this, one of the things I always think back to is try, I try to remember hangovers and realize, I, I remember, you know, detoxes, like like being strung out. But 
I'd never allowed those things to happen. Like I don't, I don't remember hangovers because I just kept drinking, you know, like I continued on through and I was so afraid of what was inside of me coming out or so I was so afraid of people leaving me. I was so like the world was intolerable to me. It was truly intolerable. And the drugs and alcohol made it so that I could survive through all the things that were going on. And, and doing that in sobriety, you know, you realize things that were previously intolerable, albeit discomfort, you know, the creating discomfort, they are shorter, they're less intense, they bring meaning, you know, the bad things that used to happen in my life, but, you know, they weren't, there wasn't a lot of meaning or introspection or things like that. And, and, and I, I feel like there's a roadmap. And I think that was one of the biggest things was that I did not, I felt, you know, they talk about like, the cliche of, you know, everybody was born with a manual for life that I did not receive. And when I entered the, you know, a 12 step program, I felt like I got, I got a manual and it was taught to me and that I I had that support and, and it changed the way I saw my life and it changed the way that made life seem doable because I had this formula that if I did it this way, if I said I was sorry when I was an ass, if I, you know, if I cleaned house, if I, if I was of service, that things would work out. And the formula has worked very well for me as it, as it has for you. And I think that's part of like that discipline and that structure. Yeah. And I mean, I, I fall short constantly, but, but the beauty is like awareness and insight and, not always, but sometimes receptivity to the feedback offered and the ability to come back and say, hey, you know, I was a jerk or I was an asshole or that wasn't cool of me. Yeah. It's amazing how effective those things are. Also, like it's almost a superpower in some ways. Like when you go out into the world, not 12-step world and you own something that way or you're honest or you use those skills in the real world. I mean, people are, it's a superpower. Yeah. It catches people off guard. That's the thing. Like I, I, I'm not on here trying to push the 12-step agenda. I'm a fan of it. I, I, no. I think, yeah. I think if we took a hundred people and said drive from LA to New York, there's a hundred different ways to get there. And all of them are correct provided you get to the destination. But some of my affinity towards what I learned through the 12-step process was simply living with some guiding principles in my life. You know, I don't want to say this is how (laughs) I've boiled it down, but to me, it's like all of the work and the takeaways from the 12-step process, at the end of the day, it just means don't be an asshole. And I can say with (laughs) objective and empirical evidence that when I'm not an asshole, my life seems to go a lot better. And when I am an asshole, people get pissed off at me and I create problems. And, you know, I I can't speak for you, but I I know that I love to overcomplicate things. If you haven't figured it out yet, I fancy myself an intellectual. And, uh, you know, I can justify and rationalize most, if not all of my behavior or why I'm right about something. So I need my pathway towards a better life to be simple, you know. Loving kindness, yeah. that's, that, that works for me. I can't really argue with that. If I'm loving, if I'm loving right. and kind and compassionate towards everyone in my life, I, I'm likely going to have pretty good days. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, yeah, I mean, I'm not, 
my go-to, like my underlying nature is not asshole. So for me, while I can be that way, it's not typically where I land if I'm not, if I'm not, but I like my overcomplicate is like I create is I create so much productivity that it's not productive. I create so much busy, create so much I nervous. I'm helping. Mine is like I'm helping so many people that I forget to do self-care and help myself. Like I'm overextended in every area of my life. And that's been an interesting thing for me regarding service work, which is that's not hard for me. That's not, it's not hard for me to give to others. What's hard for me is to remember not to give it all away so that there's nothing left for me. Well, and that's one of those dilemmas too. When you work in a helping profession, the distinguishing or differentiating between work and service, you know, I, I, I don't say this as a, as a dig, but you know, sometimes I'll be at home and someone will call me and need help. And they're just a member of the community. And, you know, I get some feedback from my wife, like, you know, you worked all day, you helped people all day. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, the altruism doesn't work when there's a dollar sign attached to it. So there's what I do for a living, which is rewarding, fulfilling and valuable. But I still have to dedicate a part of my life towards humanity. And that's the other thing that's cool is like, I can only speak for myself, but the idea of being of service can translate far beyond recovery work. Yes. Yes. That's an important, I I like to say for me, sometimes like working with animals or working outside the scope of, outside the scope of recovery, I've learned that that doing that gives me more because I'm already so entrenched in the recovery piece that I get more of that like uplifting piece. And I get more like, I'm just being of service. I don't need to explain everything and 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 just get into the deep dark of of recovery and addiction i can go and walk a dog and be of service or i can bring someone food and be of service and it's lighter and so sometimes i need that like i need light yeah i get that i mean i'm 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 thrilled with you know despite adversity i'm 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 thrilled with where my life has gone and the, the the experiences I've had and, and the good, the bad and the ugly, you know? Yeah. I wanted to know about the program you created because you've taken all of this amazing thing, stuff that you've worked on, been through all this stuff and all the, all the programs you've worked at and the programs you've been to, you've been to, you know, you got your degree, you became a therapist and now you've created this program. So tell me about like, how did you, why, why the format, why, what's different about it? Like, tell me about this, this thing that you're doing, because you have so much to offer to put into it. Well, I think before anything, I, I, I can't take sole responsibility. You know, I, I have the same title as you. I'm a co-founder and I owe so much to my partner and the team that we have in place. And, and I say that not just to convey humility, although I do think that's one of the spiritual principles that often gets overlooked. But, you know, I think a program is only as good as the people that are there and, and work there. A hundred percent. You know, yep. yeah. and on the ground, even like the front line. I remember too. I used to I used to run this process group and this client would come in and say, you know, I get more sitting on the back patio smoking with the staff or the, the techs and the clients than I do in these groups. And 
I think he was trying to trigger me or make me feel inadequate, but I would always say, great. Like the support staff is who you spend the majority of your time with. So, you know, the, the creation story isn't anything that complex. I had, I'd say at about 33 years old, I had reached the peak of my professional career as an employee. And there's nothing wrong with that. I was a clinical director of a really good program. And I was doing uh, clinical supervision and some individual and group work. But I had a moment where I didn't really have anything to look forward to. I love clinical work. I love working with patients. But at a relatively young age, there wasn't room for further growth. You know, maybe I get a raise at the end of the year, but I wanted to take my experience and collaboratively translate it into something else. Now, one of the challenges in California is not only the overabundance and saturation of treatment providers, but in Southern California, the cost of living is very high. And when looking at opening a program down here, very quickly I realized that it just was going to take a lot of resources that I didn't have access to. And it was a real choice of, you know, I could do something and have my partner and I and the team have total control. Or control may not be the best word, but or we could alienate the equity and have investors and have someone else calling the shots. And I'm not going to make generalizations, but I think that happens a lot in treatment where people that haven't really done the work on the front lines start making decisions and they're looking solely at the bottom line. And my belief at core is if you prioritize excellence, everything else will follow. But I think the trap that's taken place recently is people are looking just at the money and they prioritize money and the clients are what suffers and gets lost in translation. So I had some knowledge of the Pacific Northwest from a previous job, and I started collaboratively doing some research and looking at the area. And, you know, an analysis showed that the cost of living was a bit lower and the cost of starting a program was something that was it was within reach. So it's been about two years. We started a program called Discover Recovery. And I oftentimes say, you know, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's sort of grassroots, brass tax recovery. Um, It's it's detox and residential treatment with a strong, if not complete focus on what are you doing after treatment? Because I, I, I am not naive and I know that any treatment plan that doesn't involve long term continuing care is incomplete and destined to fail. I hate saying that, but that's my other beef with treatment nowadays. You know, in my mind, treatment and the commodity that's being sold is hope. You know, that's what recovery is all about. It's about creating and instilling hope in someone that is hopeless. But now, especially with the proliferation of private insurance and pop-up treatment centers, failure is written into treatment. It's not if you relapse, it's when you relapse. And the demographic, I would say, of transitional age youth or maybe, you know, failure to launch, there's a complete loss of hope. I, I, I was telling someone, this isn't to sound morbid, but I I remember I was running a group with some young clients and I said, let's just play a hypothetical game. You can stay sober, get a minimum wage job, struggle to pay all your bills and, and start building a life, or you can shoot heroin and go stay in a mansion. What are you going to choose? And if they're honest, the majority of them were like, yeah, you know, that that what you the option A sounds like a lot of work. And 
you know, with treatment nowadays, because the episodes are short and because there's such a prioritization of billing, I, you know, I don't think that people are equipped with the skills or the tools they need to build a sustaining or a sustainable and fulfilling life. Now, I have to throw in, that is my opinion. I do believe there are good treatment centers out there. This isn't to say treatment is bad. I mean, I own a treatment center. Like, obviously, I'm, I, I work in treatment. I believe in treatment. But it's, it's setting realistic expectations of what can be done while in treatment. You know, we do detox and residential treatment. They get therapy, counseling, group therapy, exposure to daily meetings, a safe, clean, warm environment to start the process. We're not trying to address complex trauma. We're not trying to do anything beyond stabilize, give some education, equip them with some tools, you know, maybe deal with two problems and four objectives, you know, I think. Yeah. Right. Because that's what there's well, time that's, that's for. That's my point. You know, I, I again, I have yeah. to be mindful of, of my opinion because I do work and exist in a professional field. But I used to have this model where, you know, in 90 days, in my mind, the, the things that can get achieved are physical sobriety, aka abstinence, mental stability if there's an underlying or co-occurring disorder, the beginning of development of a peer group, and identification of a safe destination for discharge. I mean, that to me is what can take place in, in a treatment episode of, you know, 60 days or so, maybe 90 days. Which is long. I mean, I'm 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 typically really happy with a 90 day when I hear people are going to do 90 days because my expectation in terms of expectations. Now, would I say longer for sure, but when people are doing 90 days, that's typically considered long term. But what I always come back to and maybe I shouldn't use myself as a point of reference, but where I was at in 90 days was far from stable. Totally. That's why I yeah, totally. I think goals have to be realistic, you know, and when you're learning about smart goals, it's, you know, specific and measurable and attainable and realistic. Like if people are coming in with no sense of self and, and broken self-esteem, they need some victories and they need to know that what they're doing is towards something that it's creating an internal buy-in. I mean, the hope is that external motivation becomes internal motivation. And and I don't know if that can happen in 30 days, but I think it's enough time to start at least giving some information and trying to get some kind of buy-in to the recovery process that can then get applied to life outside. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm like, yeah, I can, I'm, I'm on fire now. No, no, I love it. I, I, I think one of the biggest things that I've seen is that, um, that I find interesting for lack of a better term the discharge planners are, are, you know, that's a revolving door. It's not considered, the discharge planners are ever-changing and it's not considered a high-end, well-respected, robust department in many places. And to me, when I see, you know, I've gone and met with discharge planners who asked me to tell them about other programs. You know, they had a list of programs. Tell me what you know. Tell me, you know, they are, and then six months later, they're somewhere else. And so if you're dis if you do not see your discharge planning as a as as critical as your detox team, as your clinical director, as your, you know, these people are critical, then yeah, I mean, you're gonna your discharge plans are going to be lackluster. Well, 
in all honesty, the discharge plan should start day one. It, it, need, it needs to be one of the first questions asked is what are you doing after treatment? But they do ask that. It's just, I think it's done. It's in the paperwork, but how seriously do people take it? That's the piece. It's not, it's not that it's not there. It's there. But how seriously are people taking it? It doesn't feel as someone who works with a lot of the treatment centers to do discharge planning as the aftercare. It doesn't feel as critical as it seems like it should be to me. I get that. And I think you're correct in that the goal is not to do a business plan based on recidivism. And I think that's one of the challenges is most facilities just anticipate, you know, 33 to 40% of our clients are going to be coming back. That's terrible. There's, you know, I, I, I've quoted this before and I, I, I wish I had the reference to give you, but they did this study in Scandinavia about aftercare. And what they found was when there's a very solid aftercare plan created, the success rate increases almost exponentially. Like the longitudinal study was like, I'm not exaggerating, about 80% success. But the challenge is that it's up to the client to follow that aftercare plan because any aftercare plan is going to more than likely include therapy, some form of group support, probably a modality of recovery. If there's an underlying mental health concern, psychiatric medication management, work, all of these things. And like we've kind of laughed about if an individual lacks life skills, it's very hard to follow an aftercare plan. True. But at the same time, part of why we created a virtual option is because treatment centers required people to, they wanted you to go home, go back to work, but also do 10 hours a week of intensive therapy at the facility that's 20 miles away and only has afternoon. So you're going to have to tell work that you, you know, like the requirements and then they said that basically they would tell them, if you don't do this, you don't care about your recovery. <laughs> you know, if you, if it, it, it's like people can't win. And so if you, like you said, like realistically, you're putting it in the hands of the client. And so what are the obstacles for that client? Instead of saying, if you're not willing to do this exactly as it is, then you don't care about your recovery and you're not putting it first, et cetera. Instead of saying that, which is like a, a, excuse a permission slip to go say like, okay, well, I guess I'm not willing. Then look at what the actual obstacles are and well, how and I always laugh, it. you know, if someone's expected to go to group six hours a day and live in a sober living, where does that leave time or space to start building a life? It right. doesn't. And I've I've I have been and still and continue to be a huge proponent of what you're doing because the aftercare plan has to lend itself towards a reintegration back into society. I, 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 I had this model or belief that a lot of people, usually families, but maybe society and sometimes clients believe that treatment is a cure. You go to treatment and you're fixed. And that's, that speaks in large part to this sort of mentality of, you know, a pill for every ill. It's like you have a problem, you take something, problem solved. My belief is that treatment is an experience. You know, treatment in and of itself, and I'm sure if you or I think about treatment, we can remember the experiential nature of sharing in a group or staying up late with a roommate and talking about, you know, these terrible things that happen to us. In my mind, the goal is to translate the treatment experience into life outside of treatment. 
So if you're in group all day, you need something to do all day. If you're going to group therapy, you probably need some kind of community support. If you're doing therapy, then you need to find a therapist. And the goal is that, I wish I could show a bar graph, but as clinical services or treatment-related services start to decrease, life outside of treatment has to increase so that by the time you discharge, you have a full and robust life that satisfies or satiates the needs fulfilled by treatment. And I'm not naive. Mm -hmm. 30 days does not do that. I'm being very serious. No, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's detox. Yeah, I would maybe use it. I'd call it detox and stabilization. Yes. Okay. Fair. Say it. Fair. Stabilization. Um, Yes. And we have these mandates based on insurance companies. And that's, I'm not going to talk about that today, but I just, I think it's very sad that you can clearly prove medical necessity and it's still denied, you know, Mm -hmm. I've seen people die. I've seen people die. I've seen people die who didn't get medical necessity approved and needed that, that help and they didn't get it and they died. I've seen people not get liver transplants and because of like, I've, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen the insurance company make decisions that ended in the death of their, of their subscriber. And, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't have much to add to that. It's, it's borders on criminal in my mind. I was, I was really happy. I think blue shield of California lost a class action lawsuit because they denied treatment for hundreds of thousands of members that was uh, well, there, United. Tell, there was another one united yeah oh because, there was another one <laughs> because my significant other got a settlement check oh. just saying <laughs> wow bcbs in yeah. california i mean i say that with some levity but it's not it's not funny well because she was lucky that she was able you know that she survived to see the check because a lot of people don't and that's i mean that's why i'm i, I think what you are doing is remarkable because not only does it allow for a long treatment episode, but it also gives people who normally can't access treatment. You talked about someone that has to drive 40 miles to a center. It's, it's not realistic or sustainable, you know? No, but the person in treatment, this is, and this is the piece, the person in treatment who's told that that's what they need to do. And that if they're not willing to do that, then they don't really want to stay sober. Guess what they tell their therapist or their discharge planner they're going to do. They tell them they're going to drive the 40 right. miles when everybody knows that's exactly. not true. It's, I don't know. <laughs> that's the piece that that's the place where we can improve. And, and, and that's the, you know, like, you know, your discover recovery, right? Like that's where you guys are really focused on, what's real and what works and this these long-term plans well in managing expectations we don't we don't lie we don't say you're going to do treatment and and be fixed it's written into the i guess clinical philosophy but also the education offered that this is the starting point that recovery really begins i'm not going to discount someone that gets sober in treatment but the work really starts when you set foot out back into the world. That's why I think some form of consistent services is so crucial. I, I'm fortunate, you know, I have a private practice in LA and, you know, usually I make sure that the people I work with have stability, but I can tell you that the first year, two years is messy. And all that stuff that Gorski talks about, you know, post-acute withdrawal syndrome, it's real, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and to try and, yeah. And it lasts a long a time. A long time. And I can say based on professional experience that 
in order for lasting change to take place, it, it just takes time. The same way it takes time for trust to get developed. I always tell people, trust equals time plus consistency. But the challenge is that we don't get to dictate how long that is. And it's the same thing with recovery. It takes time. Yeah, your body's going to heal. You'll gain some weight. You'll get some color back in your complexion. But it takes time and experience and navigating events that you associate with substance use to create a sober point of reference. You know, I used to, when I was a kid, I'd go to concerts and party and, you know, take acid. And, you know, it was like my favorite thing to do. And I can tell you, like, the first time I went to a show of a similar genre, sober, it was hard. But the next time after that, Mm The, my most well, my most recent memory easier. was, oh, I went and saw them at Meisner Park and I was sober and it wasn't that bad, you know, but if I didn't have time and support and, and the ability to develop certain safeguards, I don't know that I would have been able to sustain. And I think I, we're both kind of making the same point, which is that this process takes a long time. It, it, yeah, it just it does. I believe that miracles can take place. I think people can have white light experiences, but time and consistency create new paradigms and new patterns of behavior, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to start throwing out numbers, but one thing that always jumped out at me is they say it takes 10,000 hours to become a master at something. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. It took me 3000 hours of interning to get my license. That's about two years. And that's a long time. And that's a lot of work. But if we're saying it takes 10,000 hours to become a master it means it's going to take me a couple years of abstinence or recovery to kind of gain some kind of mastery. Not that I have a mastery over life, but it's going to take time to learn how to live amongst humans. The key is really about the, the showing up and and doing the small, the things that feel insignificant and walking through them and doing them on a daily basis. And I think that's what's frustrating is that you really want to do some big giant, you know, move or some work or some writing or some reading or some, some monologue or whatever it is. Like you want to do something. You're like, what do I have to do? What's the work? And really it's like, you got to show up and pay your bills. And if you do that every day, you have to make three meat cook for yourself, like you and do it while sober or have a new experience and do it while sober. And it's, it's very hard to understand at the time why that those things in and of themselves are important and how they constitute the work, but they do constitute the work. They do creating and building that life and just doing the daily things that constitutes recovery work. If you're doing it while sober, I'm not a CBT therapist per se. I mean, obviously I know about cognitive behavioral therapy, but the one thing that I always call to mind is the idea that, you know, if we have thoughts, feelings, and actions, you know, in CBT, the, the term you always hear is automatic thought. I'm hardwired to immediately think something about a situation, a person, or even myself. And feelings, like, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I am not always able to control how I feel. Sometimes I just am sad or angry or frustrated. So of the three thoughts, feelings, and actions, what I have the most ability to influence or change are the actions I take. And I've seen it in myself and with clients I've worked with that if you change the actions, you start to change how you see yourself. You know, if normally, if I wake up feeling depressed and I normally would stay in bed all day, if I get out of bed and take a shower, my next thought might be, hey, you know what? I can probably get through the day versus I'm f***ed, which <laughs> may or may not have happened to me. I don't know. I mean, I'm just talking hypothetical. 
Oh, it's happened to me many times. Yeah, that's happened to me many, but that's, that's recovery work. Okay. So like, that's kind of crazy, right? Which is like getting out of bed, dragging yourself out of bed when you don't think that's possible. That's, that's part of the recovery work that we talk about is doing that. And I, I, for me, acting my way into new thinking was critical, critical. I was not going to change my thinking. And then, and then once that changed, start acting differently. I had to just act the way I was supposed to act. And eventually my brain followed along. But, you know, I remember making amends thinking like, I don't mean this. I don't mean this at all. Now today, today I do mean them. And luckily I made, I made them a long time ago and nobody knows the difference, right? <laughs> like I cleaned it up yeah, and the actions don't care why you take them. But nope. And so I, I remember going to meetings when my primary purpose was to find, you know, a mate of the opposite sex to make me feel better. Like there was no, uh, no other reason to go to that meeting, but you know what? I went to the meeting and I sat through it and I stayed sober and I probably picked something up from it. And that was so the fact that I went there in in search of something else, like none of that mattered because I showed up. And I think that's important to mention is like, it doesn't matter why. Just go, just do, just do it. Yeah, I, I this is very personal, but I remember the first time I did or read a fourth step or fifth step, you know, I was told if you're not honest, you're probably going to drink again. And it scared the crap out of me. And the reason why I took a certain action was fear-based. But I have to say, looking back on it, it was cathartic. It was life-changing. It was, you know, nothing that I wanted to do, but the opposite action or contrary action led me to a new understanding of not only myself, but how doing things that are challenging or difficult is imbued with meaning. I read this book when I was newly sober that changed my life. And, and the, the premise of it was the author was suggesting that you can only trust that which is difficult, that anything in life that comes to you easily is suspect. And reading it while being newly sober, it, it kind of dawned on me that like, well, this sobriety stuff is hard. So maybe I can just trust that I'm doing the right thing. And what's interesting is as I got into therapy, Sometimes I'll ask a group, I'll say, you know, tell me in your life what has been the most meaningful thing you've done or your life's greatest achievement or a moment that you're most proud of. And with kids or not kids, with young adults, it's oftentimes graduating high school, maybe graduating college or uh, sporting events are oftentimes called upon. And like, yeah, right? like, like my, my basketball team won the championship. And if you go mm -hmm. one step further mm -hmm. and say, you know, did you work hard to finish high school? Did you work hard to win the championship? They all would say, right, yeah, right, you know, right. I went to practice every day and I, I woke up early and I ran a couple miles. Yeah. And then with, with uh, older clients or people that maybe are a little bit more advanced professionally, it's going to be like a professional accomplishment. Oftentimes it's raising a family. Is it, you know. Right. Nothing, nothing that was easy. That's easy. Is, is is full of is, is very full of meaning and um right that's that's exactly it you know and i don't want to get metaphorical but look at a diamond yeah. it's coal that's under so much pressure that it becomes and transmutes into this precious stone so you know i it's not always easy for people to hear this but that, that to get people internally motivated it's like look it's going to be a struggle but i can i would say i can almost guarantee 
that it's going to be worth it. You know, I never want to make a promise just in case I'm wrong, but yeah. <laughs> I can almost like 96% guarantee it's going to be worthwhile. And and that's been my experience. Yeah. Like everything I've struggled for or worked hard for, you know, even starting a business, it's it has not been fun. I mean, yeah, yeah no, I'm not to be honest. Like it has not been fun. It's been anxiety provoking mm-hmm. and scary and challenging, but it's what it takes to grow and develop skill sets and learn how to communicate better or maybe be more assertive or less lazy, you know? I, I, I look, yeah, I mean, yeah. you see, yeah. you, no one no one else can see, but I got my wolf t-shirt on and a pair of athletic shorts, you know, I'm keeping it athletic casual. This is my uniform of choice. They're- Oh yes, oh yes. No, I, I, I totally get it. I heard this, um, this quote the other day that really just like, you know, this it just rolls around in your head for a bit. And I heard this quote says, "You drown not by falling into a river, but by staying submerged in it." And I, I really, th- I like it's been rolling around in my head about how you, it's the wallowing. It's the, it's the, it's not the it's not the falling into the river, right? It's not the, it's, it's, you don't, that's not how people drown. They drown by staying under and how often we choose to stay under or because we wallow in those feelings or whatever, because, because the decision to come to the surface is going to be a struggle. The decision to survive is a struggle. The journey to survival, the journey to recovery is a struggle and that's that that's how you make it but what if you struggle. I mean, now we're getting a little metaphysical but what if the struggle is somewhat optional and all i mean by that is like i'm not an outdoorsy guy well i mean i like camping and stuff but i went whitewater rafting once in my life when i was 12 and i remember them telling me if you fall into the rapids lay on your back and try and flow downstream feet first do not try and grab onto anything. Do not fight it. Just surrender. So I kind of stored that away in my unconscious. And then having like sponsored guys or worked as a therapist, it's, it's that there's this element of like when we're in chaos, sometimes the more self-will or the more I exert myself, the more painful it becomes. And that principle of surrender and kind of letting it's not to say be passive entirely, but kind of weathering the storm and not sustaining damage and waiting until it's safe to then reassert yourself. So, okay. So I, I have a tattoo across my side. Oh, worst ever. That's just like, why? Um, when you're halfway through, you're like, okay, oh God. It says never give up, never surrender. Okay. <laughs> right across my side. Isn't like that from that movie lettering. Galaxy Quest? And Yes. And, um, are you, are you upset that dad, I knew that? It was something. No, no, it's, it's not something most people know, though. My dad used to say that to me when I was a little kid, and it was our saying. And basically, in recovery, I've had to surrender, right? Like I've had to, I've had to make surrenders. I've had to cease fighting everyone and everything. However, for me, the real surrender, the real true surrender is to my disease is to my mental illness, is suicide, overdose. That's the real surrender. So when I, I wish there was another term for it. So when I look at my tattoo, this is never give up, never surrender. It's about never letting the disease 
or those thoughts win. And when I look at the strategy of not fighting in uh, Whitewater Rapids, that's a strat surrend- relaxing surrendering is a strategy and a decision that you make. And so you're it's a participation. You're participating in the outcome and the positive outcome. So I don't believe that the fight is always the the necessity. And I think surrender in the sense of recovery is choosing to be part of the solution and the strategy. And sometimes that means letting go. But for me, real never give up, never surrender, truly surrendering is don't let it win. Don't let it kill you. Beautifully stated. I mean, you always hear debate about the definition of surrender. You know, it's like, oh, to join the winning side. But I I think the one I heard that always resonated with me was just kind of like to succumb to something more powerful. You know, it's, it's, you know, if we borrow from our vernacular, sort of turning my will and my life over to this spiritual path. Yeah. To the path. That, that, to the path. Yeah. That's right. To the path. To the path. And and that is a, is a, a choice to opt in. And for me, the, the belief that I would choose, the belief that I would opt out, the choice to opt out, the surrender to opt out to my, to stop fighting my disease. If I stop fighting my disease, that's where I can't surrender. That's where I can't stop fighting or give up is that I cannot never s- stop fighting my disease and my me- my depression, my anxiety. The day I do that, I'm done. But when I stop fighting the recovery path, that's also yeah, yeah. when I win. So it's like it's like who you're surrendering to. It's not never surrender. It's who you're surrendering to. And to surrender to the path is, is that's where I win. But if I surrender to my disease, uh, I'm done. Yeah. It's, it's the, the choice of what, what, what team we, we join. Yeah. Yeah. It's the star Wars, you know, the dark side or, you know, it's the, every dark and light evil with that light and dark shadow. I know. Yeah, shadow, yin yang. Yeah, I yeah, it's, it's no argument, and and that's one of those spiritual facets of my life that it's very reductive. But I, I'll never forget. Someone told me when I had maybe six months sober, they said every decision you make moves you in one of two directions. Every decision. It doesn't mean that if I tell a lie, I'm going to go get messed up, but it does mean I'm starting to move towards the dark. The other thing, and I kind of, once I went back to school, I took this idea and I was like, all right, so if every decision moves me in one of two, one of two ways, it's also safe to assume that as you move towards a drink or a drug, there's going to be an emotional component to that. When I start living with negative behaviors, I'm going to probably feel more irritable, more depressed, more anxious. Conversely, when I live with a lot of positive action and behavior, there's probably going to be a greater degree of fulfillment and happiness. So it's this, at least the way I've conceptualized it for myself and maybe some of the people I work with is it's sort of this balance of, you know, we, we, we go back and forth. I make mistakes every day. But the end goal is to kind of strive or grow towards some form of ideal. And I know I'm never going to get there. I know that I will never be perfect, but provided it's a very simple way of putting it, but I put more good out into the world than bad. I'm probably going to make progress and feel better. You know, two steps forward, one step back is still one step forward. And 
You know, it's like, right. I've always liked that idea of progress, yeah. not perfection. The thing that I've always had to be cautious of those, I think it's easy to hide behind that, you know, because what is progress? Mm-hmm. That's about honesty. Right. That's but about I've the seen honesty. So many people like, oh yeah, I stole from work and I cheated on my girlfriend, but I didn't drink. So that's progress, not perfection. I'm like, all right, well, at a certain point, you know, I think I have to reorient myself towards what it means to be making progress. Like I have to, you know, now you kind of got me going, but there's also an imperative to raise the bar. Like obviously month zero through six, the bar can be abstinence, but it has to keep getting raised. And I think that's another challenge is, and and maybe it's as a society or maybe as professionals, but we have an obligation to, yeah, we want to set goals and make them realistic, but we have to also adjust and adapt and continue heightening expectations. That's about, so it's interesting. That's about upgrading your recovery. And it, it goes back to something that you said, actually, which was, if I don't ever leave the basics, then I don't have to go back to them, which I agree with. However, one of the things you said was that you know, the same thing that worked for me in year one is going to work for me in year 15, which I don't agree with. I think that, I think that there's, you know, some of those things for sure. But I think that that's where you're raising the bar because if the bar was the same, you know, you're raising the bar, you're upgrading, you're updating and upgrading your recovery because who you were in year one and who you are in year 15 are not the same person. Yeah. The other, yes, I agree. The other thing I mentioned is it's not so much about only doing the basics, but it's keeping them in place while adding right. to them. Yes. And I only say that because I don't know that there's ever going to be a substitute for helping somebody. Like we talked about, there are ways to go out in the world and be of service, whether it's volunteering at an animal shelter or feeding the homeless. But the spiritual significance of kind of holding someone's hand through the early stages of recovery is it's, there's, there's something very profound about that. But I, I think maybe the, the point I should have tried to convey is it's, it's really about the road getting narrower, meaning take, take the principle of honesty. You know, maybe year one through three, 70% honesty was good enough. Now, I, I'm not saying that was the metric I worked with, but, you know, like, like, no, like no, no, I'm, I'm get pretty it. honest and I'm pretty righteous, you know, but as the time goes on, it's like I'm striving for, you know, honesty or 95%, you know, I I guess that's all I mean. It's like, yeah, we need balance and we need to walk the middle path, but the road is going to get narrower because there is a spiritual toll for negative action. And what maybe was okay five years ago is no longer okay. So true. I mean, the way I acted in my first couple of years, like just around honesty, you know, would be catastrophic if I did that today. I mean, and then it was like, you know, so the progress is definitely different. And I think raising the bar is one of those ways you stay sober a long time. I think that's, I think it's really vital. And I probably should have been more clear about that. And I, and I think both for ourselves and the people we serve or we work with is letting them know that, you know, yes, sobriety is so awesome and it's what this all starts with. And that's the foundation, but there have to be things to look forward to, goals, dreams, aspirations. You know, I don't know about you, but I was very fortunate. Like I had heroes when I got sober. I had people that had lives yeah. that looking back on them were not that awesome. Like my first sponsor, my first sponsor had this <laughs> beat up scooter that could only go 20 miles per hour. And I would ride on the back of it, holding on to him. And he had an apartment with like yeah. two roommates and there was a pool in the apartment complex and he had a job. And I was like, 
and, and he was in school. And I was like, this guy is like my hero. I want to be him. And I and I think that's the idea. It's uh, in, in Greek philosophy. There's like, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like, show me a show me a man's friends and you show me the man. And then later on, they, they change it to, you know, we are the sum of our relations. And the way I internalize that is the people I surround myself with are going to not only reflect who I am, but also who I'm striving to become, you know, so it's, it's, it's delicate, you know, it's, yeah, I want to help people that are struggling, but I want to be surrounded with people that I can learn from and grow from. I don't want to be at the top. You know, I, I want to continue growing and changing and, you know, stumbling because like we've already discussed, like the, the pain and the, the humiliation and the bad things that have happened to me within the context of recovery have also been these moments of learning. My, my first time in treatment, uh, this guy, this tech, he said, my definition of humility is remaining teachable. And that has never left me. And I, I remember the guy's name. I'm friends with him on Facebook and I thank him. Because the minute I start thinking that I know something and I'm an expert, it's like, yeah, okay, I got degrees and I've read books and I've worked with people and I've been on TV, like all this stuff. I'm still in a position where I need to grow and learn and just continue making progress, you know? Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, I could talk to you for hours and I think that we have really... It's been fun to dig deep into, you know, these ideas and these concepts, which I don't normally do. So I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate your time and you coming on here. And and I, if people are interested in learning more about you and Discover Recovery, where can uh, they You can go? find us on Facebook. You can search Discover Recovery. You can visit us on the web at www.discoveryourrecovery.com. And... Uh, you know, we're on all the social media platforms and I'm hoping that we'll be able to post a link in the show description and, you know, I'll make sure, I'll make sure I provide everything to anyone that's in in help or in need. And that's the only thing I didn't mention is the real thing that we're trying to do differently is also eliminate barriers to treatment. We're, We're simply stated, you know, reasonable and we're not looking to make families take out a second mortgage on their home to pay for treatment. So reach out contact us thank you so much for having me definitely yeah it's been lovely thank you so much for being here this podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings useful recovery information and entertainment visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings schedule and find additional resources Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.